Section 8 of The Economic Consequences of the Peace by John Maynard Keynes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Graham Macmillan. Chapter 5. Reparation. Part 3. Germany's Capacity to Pay. The forms in which Germany can discharge the sum which she has engaged herself to pay are three in number. 1. Immediately transferable wealth in the form of gold, ships, and foreign securities. 2. The value of property in ceded territory or surrendered under the armistice. 3. Annual payments spread over a term of years, partly in cash and partly in materials such as coal products, potash, and dyes. There is excluded from the above the actual restitution of property removed from territory occupied by the enemy, as for example Russian gold, Belgium and French securities, cattle, machinery, and works of art. In so far as the actual goods taken can be identified and restored, they must clearly be returned to their rightful owners, and cannot be brought into the general reparation pool. This is expressly provided for in Article 238 of the Treaty. 1. Immediately transferable wealth. a. Gold. After deduction of the gold to be returned to Russia, the official holding of gold as shown in the Reichsbank's return of the 30th of November 1918 amounted to $577,089,500. This was a very much larger amount than it appeared in the Reichsbank's return prior to the war, and was the result of the vigorous campaign carried on in Germany during the war for the surrender to the Reichsbank not only of gold coin, but of gold ornaments of every kind. Private hoards doubtless still exist, but, in view of the great efforts already made, it is unlikely that either the German government or the Allies will be able to unearth them. The return can therefore be taken as probably representing the maximum amount which the German government are able to extract from their people. In addition to gold, there was in the Reichsbank a sum of about $5 million in silver. There must be, however, a further substantial amount in circulation, for the holdings of the Reichsbank were as high as $45.5 million on the 31st of December 1917, and stood at about $30 million up to the latter part of October 1918, when the internal run began on currency of every kind. We may, therefore, take a total of, say, $625 million for gold and silver together at the date of the armistice. These reserves, however, are no longer intact. During the long period which elapsed between the armistice and the peace, it became necessary for the Allies to facilitate the provisioning of Germany from abroad. The political condition of Germany at that time, and the serious menace of Spartacism, rendered this step necessary in the interests of the Allies themselves, if they desired the continuance in Germany of a stable government to treat with. The question of how such provisions were to be paid for presented, however, the gravest difficulties. A series of conferences was held at Treves, at Spa, at Brussels, and subsequently at Chateau Villette and Versailles, between representatives of the Allies and of Germany, with the object of finding some method of payment as little injurious as possible to the future prospects of reparation payments. The German representatives maintained from the outset that the financial exhaustion of their country was for the time being so complete that a temporary loan from the Allies was the only possible expedient. This the Allies could hardly admit at a time when they were preparing demands for the immediate payment by Germany of immeasurably larger sums. But, apart from this, the German claim could not be accepted as strictly accurate so long as their gold was still untapped, and their remaining foreign securities unmarketed. In any case, it was out of the question to suppose that in the spring of 1919 public opinion in the Allied countries or in America would have allowed the grant of a substantial loan to Germany. On the other hand, the Allies were naturally reluctant to exhaust on the provisioning of Germany the gold which seemed to afford one of the few obvious and certain sources for reparation. Much time was expended in the exploration of all possible alternatives, but it was evident at last that, 
even if german exports and saleable foreign securities had been available to a sufficient value they could not be liquidated in time and that the financial exhaustion of germany was so complete that nothing whatever was immediately available in substantial amounts except the gold in the reichsbank accordingly a sum exceeding two hundred and fifty million dollars in all out of the reichsbank gold was transferred by germany to the allies chiefly to the united states great britain however also receiving a substantial sum during the first six months of nineteen nineteen in payment for foodstuffs but this was not all although germany agreed under the first extension of the armistice not to export gold without allied permission this permission could not be always withheld there were liabilities of the reichsbank accruing in the neighboring neutral countries which could not be met otherwise than in gold the failure of the reichsbank to meet its liabilities would have caused a depreciation of the exchange so injurious to germany's credit as to react on the future prospects of reparation in some cases therefore permission to export gold was accorded to the reichsbank by the supreme economic council of the allies the net result of these various measures was to reduce the gold reserve of the reichsbank by more than half the figures falling from five hundred and seventy five million dollars to two hundred and seventy five million dollars in september nineteen nineteen it would be possible under the treaty to take the whole of this latter sum for reparation purposes it amounts however as it is to less than four per cent of the reichsbank's note issue and the psychological effect of its total confiscation might be expected having regard to the very large volume of mark notes held abroad to destroy the exchange value of the mark almost entirely a sum of twenty five million dollars fifty million dollars or even a hundred million dollars might be taken for a special purpose but we may assume that the reparation commission will judge it imprudent having regard to the reaction on their future prospects of securing payment to ruin the german currency system altogether more particularly because the french and belgium governments being holders of a very large volume of marked notes formerly circulating in the occupied or ceded territory have a great interest in maintaining some exchange value for the mark quite apart from reparation prospects it follows therefore that no sum worth speaking of can be expected in the form of gold or silver towards the initial payment of five billion dollars due by nineteen twenty one b shipping germany has engaged as we have seen above to surrender to the allies virtually the whole of her merchant shipping a considerable part of it indeed was already in the hands of the allies prior to the conclusion of the peace either by detention in their ports or by the provisional transfer of tonnage under the brussels agreement in connection with the supply of foodstuffs estimating the tonnage of german shipping to be taken over under the treaty at four million gross tons and the average value per ton at a hundred and fifty dollars the total money value involved is six hundred million dollars c foreign securities prior to the census of foreign securities carried out by the german government in september nineteen sixteen of which the exact result have not been made public no official return of such investments was ever called for in germany and the various unofficial estimates are confessedly based on insufficient data such as the admission of foreign securities to the german stock exchanges the receipt of the stamp duties consular reports etc the principal german estimates current before the war are given in the appended footnote this shows a general consensus of opinion among german authorities that their net foreign investments were upwards of six point two five billion dollars i take this figure as the basis of my calculations although i believe it to be an exaggeration five billion dollars would probably be a safer figure deductions from this aggregate total have to be made under four heads one investments in allied countries and in the united states which between them constitute a considerable part of the world have been sequestrated by public trustees custodians of enemy property and similar officials and are not available for reparation except in so far as they show a surplus over various private claims 
Under the scheme for dealing with enemy debts outlined in Chapter 4, the first charge of these assets is the private claims of Allied against German nationals. It is unlikely, except in the United States, that there will be any appreciable surplus for any other purpose. 2. Germany's most important fields of foreign investment before the war were not, like ours, overseas, but in Russia, Austria-Hungary, Turkey, Romania, and Bulgaria. A great part of these has now become almost valueless, at any rate for the time being, especially those in Russia and Austria-Hungary. If present market value is to be taken as the test, none of these investments are now saleable above a nominal figure. Unless the Allies are prepared to take over these securities much above their nominal market valuation and hold them for future realization, there is no substantial source of funds for immediate payment in the form of investments in these countries. 3. While Germany was not in a position to realize her foreign investments during the war, to the degree that we were, she did so nevertheless in the case of certain countries and to the extent that she was able. Before the United States came into the war, she is believed to have resold a large part of the pick of her investments in American securities, although some current estimates of these sales, a figure of $300 million has been mentioned, are probably exaggerated. But throughout the war, and particularly in its later stages, when her exchanges were weak and her credit in the neighboring neutral countries was becoming very low, she was disposing of such securities as Holland, Switzerland, and Scandinavia would buy or would accept as collateral. It is reasonably certain that by June 1919, her investments in these countries had been reduced to a negligible figure and were far exceeded by her liabilities in them. Germany has also sold certain overseas securities, such as Argentine cedulas, for which a market could be found. 4. It is certain that since the armistice there has been a great flight abroad of the foreign securities still remaining in private hands. This is exceedingly difficult to prevent. German foreign investments are, as a rule, in the form of bearer securities and are not registered. They are easily smuggled abroad across Germany's extensive land frontiers, and for some months before the conclusion of peace, it was certain that their owners would not be allowed to retain them if the Allied governments could discover any method of getting hold of them. These factors combined to stimulate human ingenuity, and the efforts both of the Allied and of the German governments to interfere effectively with the outflow are believed to have been largely futile. In face of all of these considerations, it will be a miracle if much remains for reparation. The countries of the Allies and of the United States, the countries of Germany's own allies, and the neutral countries adjacent to Germany exhaust between them almost the whole of the civilized world. And, as we have seen, we cannot expect much to be available for reparation from investments in any of these quarters. Indeed, there remain no countries of importance for investments except those of South America. To convert the significance of these deductions into figures involves much guesswork. I give the reader the best personal estimate I can after pondering the matter in the light of the available figures and other relevant data. I put the deduction under one at $1.5 billion, of which $500 million may be ultimately available after meeting private debts, etc. As regards two, according to a census taken by the Austrian Ministry of Finance on the 31st of December 1912, the nominal value of the Austro-Hungarian securities held by Germans was $986,500,000. Germany's pre-war investments in Russia outside government securities have been estimated at $475 million, which is much lower than would be expected. And in 1906, Sartorius v. Walterschein estimated her investments in Russian government securities at $750 million. This gives a total of $1.225 billion, which is to some extent borne out by the figure of $1 billion given in 1911 
by Dr. Rishanian as a deliberately modest estimate. A Romanian estimate, published at the time of that country's entry in the war, gave the value of Germany's investments in Romania at $20 million to $22 million, of which 14 to $16 million were in government securities. An Association for the Defense of French Interests in Turkey, as reported in the Temps, September 1919, has estimated the total amount of German capital invested in Turkey at about $295 million, of which, according to the latest report of the Council of Foreign Bondholders, $162.5 million was held by German nationals in the Turkish external debt. No estimates are available to me of Germany's investments in Bulgaria. Altogether, I venture a deduction of $2.5 billion in respect of this group of countries as a whole. Resales and the pledging as collateral of securities during the war under three I put at 500 million to 750 million, comprising practically all Germany's holding of Scandinavian, Dutch, and Swiss securities, a part of her South American securities, and a substantial proportion of her North American securities sold prior to the entry of the United States into the war. As to the proper deduction under four, there are naturally no available figures. For months past, the European press has been full of sensational stories of the expedients adopted. But if we put the value of securities which have already left Germany or have been safely secreted within Germany itself beyond discovery by the most inquisitorial and powerful methods at $500 million, we are not likely to overstate it. These various items lead, therefore, in all, to a deduction of a round figure of about $5 billion and leave us with an amount of $1.25 billion theoretically still available. To some readers this may seem low, but let them remember that it purports to represent the remnant of saleable securities upon which the German government might be able to lay hands for public purposes. In my opinion it is much too high, and considering the problem by a differing method of attack I arrive at a lower figure. For leaving out of account sequestered allied securities and investments in Austria, Russia, etc., what blocks of securities, specified by countries and enterprises, can Germany possibly still have, which could amount to as much as $1.25 billion? I cannot answer the question. She has some Chinese government securities which have not been sequestered, a few Japanese, perhaps, and a more substantial value of first-class South American properties. But there are very few enterprises of this class still in German hands, and even their value is measured by one or two tens of millions, not by fifties or hundreds. He would be a rash man, in my judgment, who joined a syndicate to pay $500 million in cash for the unsequestered remnant of Germany's overseas investments. If the Reparation Commission is to realize even this lower figure, it is probable that they will have to nurse for some years the assets which they take over, not attempting their disposal at the present time. We have, therefore, a figure of from $500 million to $1.25 billion as the maximum contribution from Germany's foreign securities. Her immediately transferable wealth is composed, then, of a. Gold and silver, say $300 million, Ships, $600 million, c. Foreign securities, $500 million to $1.25 billion. Of the gold and silver, it is not, in fact, practicable to take any substantial part without consequences to the German currency system, injurious to the interests of the Allies themselves. The contribution from all these sources together, which the Reparation Commission can hope to secure by May 1921, may be put, therefore, at from $1.25 to $1.75 billion as a maximum. 2. Property in ceded territory or surrendered under the armistice. 
As the treaty has been drafted, Germany will not receive important credits available towards meeting reparation in respect of her property in ceded territory. Private property in most of the ceded territory is utilized towards discharging private German debts to allied nationals, and only the surplus, if any, is available towards reparation. The value of such property in Poland and the other new states is payable direct to the owners. Government property in Alsace-Lorraine, in territory ceded to Belgium, and in Germany's former colonies transferred to a mandatory, is to be forfeited without credit given. Buildings, forests, and other state property which belong to the former kingdom of Poland are also to be surrendered without credit. There remain, therefore, government properties other than the above, surrendered to Poland, government properties in Schleswig, surrendered to Denmark, the value of the Saar coal fields, the value of certain river crafts, etc., to be surrendered under the ports, waterways, and railways chapter, and the value of the German submarine cables transferred under Annex 7 of the reparation chapter. Whatever the treaty may say, the Reparation Commission will not secure any cash payments from Poland. I believe that the Saar coal fields have been valued at from $75 million to $100 million, a round figure of $150 million for all the above items, excluding any surplus available in respect of private property, is probably a liberal estimate. There remains the value of material surrendered under the armistice. Article 250 provides that a credit shall be assessed by the Reparation Commission for rolling stock surrendered under the armistice, as well as for certain other specific items, and generally for any material so surrendered for which the Reparation Commission think that credit should be given as having non-military value. The rolling stock, 150,000 wagons and 5,000 locomotives, is the only very valuable item. A round figure of $250 million for all the armistice surrenders is probably, again, a liberal estimate. We have, therefore, $400 million to add in respect of this heading to our figure of $1.25 to $1.75 billion under the previous heading. This figure differs from the preceding in that it does not represent cash capable of benefiting the financial situation of the Allies, but is only a book credit between themselves or between them and Germany. The total of $1.65 to $2.15 billion now reached is not, however, available for reparation. The first charge upon it, under Article 251 of the treaty, is the cost of the armies of occupation, both during the armistice and after the conclusion of peace. The aggregate of this figure up to May 1921 cannot be calculated until the rate of withdrawal is known which is to reduce the monthly cost from the figure exceeding $100 million, which prevailed during the first part of 1919, to that of $5 million, which is to be the normal figure eventually. I estimate, however, that this aggregate may be about $1 billion. This leaves us with from $500 million to $1 billion still in hand. Out of this, and out of the exports of goods and payments in kind under the treaty prior to May 1921, for which I have not as yet made any allowance, the Allies have held out the hope that they will allow Germany to receive back such sums for the purchase of necessary food and raw materials as the former deem it essential for her to have. It is not possible at the present time to form an accurate judgment either as to the money value of the goods which Germany will require to purchase from abroad in order to re-establish her economic life, or as the degree of liberality with which the Allies will exercise their discretion. If her stocks of raw materials and food were to be restored to anything approaching their normal level by May 1921, Germany would probably require foreign purchasing power of from $500 million to $1 billion, at least, in addition to the value of her current exports. While this is not likely to be permitted, 
I venture to assert, as a matter beyond reasonable dispute, that the social and economic condition of Germany cannot possibly permit a surplus of exports over imports during the period prior to May 1921, and that the value of any payments in kind with which she may be able to furnish the Allies under the treaty, in the form of coal, dyes, timber, or other materials, will have to be returned to her to enable her to pay for imports essential to her existence. The Reparation Commission can, therefore, expect no addition from other sources to the sum of from $500 million to $1 billion, with which we have hypothetically credited it after the realization of Germany's immediately transferable wealth, the calculation of the credits due to Germany under the treaty, and the discharge of the cost of the armies of occupation. As Belgium has secured a private agreement with France, the United States, and Great Britain outside the treaty by which she is to receive, towards satisfaction of her claims, the first $500 million available for reparation, the upshot of the whole matter is that Belgium may possibly get her $500 million by May 1921, but none of the other allies are likely to secure by that date any contribution worth speaking of. At any rate, it would be very imprudent for finance ministers to lay their plans on any other hypothesis. Part 3. Annual Payments Spread Over a Term of Years It is evident that Germany's pre-war capacity to pay an annual foreign tribute has not been unaffected by the almost total loss of her colonies, her overseas connections, her mercantile marine, and her foreign properties, by the cessation of 10% of her territory and population, of one-third of her coal and of three-quarters of her iron ore, by two million casualties amongst men in the prime of life, by the starvation of her people for four years, by the burden of a vast war debt, by the depreciation of her currency to less than one-seventh of its former value, by the disruption of her allies and their territories, by revolution at home and Bolshevism on her borders, and by all the unmeasured ruin in strength and hope of four years of all-swallowing war and final defeat. All this, one would have supposed, is evident yet most estimates of a great indemnity from Germany depend on the assumption that she is in a position to conduct in the future a vastly greater trade than she ever had in the past. For the purpose of arriving at a figure, it is of no great consequence whether payment takes the form of cash, or rather of foreign exchange, or is partly affected in kind, coals, dyes, timber, etc., as contemplated by the trade. In any event, it is only by the export of specific commodities that Germany can pay, and the method of turning the value of these exports to account for reparation purposes is, comparatively, a matter of detail. We shall lose ourselves in mere hypothesis unless we return in some degree to first principles, and whenever we can, to such statistics as there are. It is certain that an annual payment can only be made by Germany over a series of years by diminishing her imports and increasing her exports, thus enlarging the balance in her favor which is available for effecting payments abroad. Germany can pay in the long run in goods, and in goods only, whether these goods are furnished direct to the Allies, or whether they are sold to neutrals, and the neutral credits so arising are then made over to the Allies. The most solid basis for estimating the extent to which this process can be carried is to be found, therefore, in an analysis of her trade returns before the war. Only on the basis of such an analysis, supplemented by some general data as to the aggregate wealth-producing capacity of the country, can a rational guess be made as to the maximum degree to which the exports of Germany could be brought to exceed her imports. In the year 1913, Germany's imports amounted to $2.7 billion, and her imports to $2.525 billion, exclusive of transit trade and bullion. That is to say, imports exceeded exports by about $165 million. 
On the average of the five years ending 1913, however, her imports exceeded her exports by a substantially larger amount, namely $370 million. It follows, therefore, that more than the whole of Germany's pre-war balance for new foreign investment was derived from the interest on her existing foreign securities, and from the profits of her shipping, foreign banking, etc. As her foreign properties and her mercantile marine are now to be taken from her, and as her foreign banking and other miscellaneous sources of revenue from abroad have been largely destroyed, it appears that, on the pre-war basis of exports and imports, Germany, so far from having a surplus wherewith to make a foreign payment, would be not nearly self-supporting. Her first task, therefore, must be to effect a readjustment of consumption and production to cover this deficit. Any further economy she can effect in the use of imported commodities, and any further stimulation of exports, will then be available for reparation. Two-thirds of Germany's imports and export trade is enumerated under separate headings in the following tables. The considerations applying to the enumerated portions may be assumed to apply more or less to the remaining one-third, which is comprised of commodities of minor importance individually. These tables show that the most important exports consisted of iron goods, including plate metals, 13%, machinery, etc., 7.5%, coal, coke, and briquettes, 7%, woolen goods, including raw and combed wool, 5.9%, and cotton goods, including cotton yarn and thread and raw cotton, 5.6%. These five classes, between them, accounting for 39.2% of the total exports. It will be observed that all these goods are of a kind in which, before the war, competition between Germany and the United Kingdom was very severe. If, therefore, the volume of such exports to overseas or European destinations is very largely increased, the effect upon British export trade must be correspondingly serious. As regards two of the categories, namely cotton and woolen goods, the increase of an export trade is dependent upon an increase of the import of the raw material, since Germany produces no cotton and practically no wool. These trades are therefore incapable of expansion unless Germany is given facilities for securing these raw materials, which can only be at the expense of the Allies, in excess of the pre-war standard of consumption, and even then the effective increase is not the gross value of the exports, but only the difference between the value of the manufactured exports and of the imported raw material. As regards the other three categories, namely machinery, iron goods, and coal, Germany's capacity to increase her exports will have been taken from her by the cessions of territory in Poland, Upper Silesia, and Alsace-Lorraine. As has been pointed out already, these districts accounted for nearly one-third of Germany's production of coal, but they also supplied no less than three-quarters of her iron ore production, 38% of her blast furnaces, and 9.5% of her iron and steel foundries. Unless, therefore, Alsace-Lorraine and Upper Silesia send their iron ore to Germany proper, to be worked up, which will involve an increase in the imports for which she will have to find payment, so far from any increase in export trade being possible, a decrease is inevitable. Next on the list comes cereals, leather goods, sugar, paper, furs, electrical goods, silk goods, and dyes. Cereals are not a net export, and are far more than balanced by imports of the same commodities. As regards sugar, nearly 90% of Germany's pre-war exports came to the United Kingdom. An increase in this trade might be stimulated by a grant of a preference in this country to German sugar, or by an arrangement by which sugar was taken in part payment for an indemnity on the same lines, as has been proposed for coal, dyes, etc., Paper exports also might be capable of some increase. Leather goods, furs, and silks depend upon corresponding imports on the other side of the account. 
Silk goods are largely in competition with the trade of France and Italy. The remaining items are individually very small. I have heard it suggested that the indemnity might be paid to a great extent in potash and the like. But potash before the war represented 0.6% of Germany's export trade, and about $15 million in aggregate value. Besides, France, having secured a potash field in the territory which has been restored to her, will not welcome a great stimulation of the German exports of this material. An examination of the import list shows that 63.6% are raw materials and food. The chief items of the former class, namely cotton, wool, copper, hides, iron ore, furs, silk, rubber, and tin, could not be too much reduced without reacting on the export trade, and might have to be increased if the export trade was to be increased. Imports of food, namely wheat, barley, coffee, eggs, rice, maize, and the like, present a different problem. It is unlikely that, apart from certain comforts, the consumption of food by the German laboring classes before the war was in excess of what was required for maximum efficiency. Indeed, it probably fell short of that amount. Any substantial decrease in the imports of food would therefore react on the efficiency of the industrial populations, and consequently on the volume of surplus exports which they could be forced to produce. It is hardly possible to insist on a greatly increased productivity of German industry if the workmen are to be underfed. But this may not be equally true of barley, coffee, eggs, and tobacco. If it were possible to enforce a regime in which for the future no German drank beer or coffee, or smoked any tobacco, a substantial saving could be effected. Otherwise, there seems little room for any significant reduction. The following analysis of German exports and imports, according to destination and origin, is also relevant. From this it appears that of Germany's exports in 1913, 18% went to the British Empire, 17% to France, Italy and Belgium, 10% to Russia and Romania, and 7% to the United States. That is to say, more than half of the exports found their market in the countries of the Entente nations. Of the balance, 12% went to Austria-Hungary, Turkey and Bulgaria and 35% elsewhere. Unless, therefore, the present allies are prepared to encourage the importation of German products, a substantial increase in total volume can only be affected by the wholesale swamping of neutral markets. The above analysis affords some indication of the possible magnitude of the maximum modification of Germany's export balance under the conditions which will prevail after the peace. On the assumptions, one, that we do not specially favor Germany over ourselves in supplies of such raw materials as cotton and wool, the world's supply of which is limited, two, that France, having secured the iron ore deposits, makes a serious attempt to secure the blast furnaces and the steel trade also, three, that Germany is not encouraged and assisted to undercut the iron and other trades of the Allies in overseas market, and four, that a substantial preference is not given to German goods in the British Empire, it is evident by examination of the specific items that not much is practicable. Let us run over the chief items again. 1. Iron goods. In view of Germany's loss of resources, an increased net export seems impossible and a large decrease probable. 2. Machinery. Some increase is possible. 3. Coal and coke. The value of Germany's net export before the war was $110 million. The Allies have agreed that for the time being, 20 million tons is the maximum possible export, with a problematic, and in fact impossible, increase to 40 million tons at some future time. 
Even on the basis of 20 million tons, we have virtually no increase of value measured in pre-war prices. Whilst, if this amount is exacted, there must be a decrease of far greater value in the export of manufactured articles requiring coal for their production. 4. Woolen goods. An increase is impossible without the raw wool, and having regard to the other claims on supplies of raw wool, a decrease is likely. 5. Cotton goods. The same considerations apply as to wool. 6. Cereals. There never was and never can be a net export. 7. Leather goods. The same considerations apply as to wool. We have now covered nearly half of Germany's pre-war exports, and there is no other commodity which further represented as much as 3% of her exports. In what commodity is she to pay? Dyes? The total value in 1913 was $50 million. Toys? Potash? 1913 exports were worth $15 million. And even if the commodities could be specified, in what markets are they to be sold? Remembering that we have in mind goods to the value not of tens of millions annually, but of hundreds of millions. On the side of imports, rather more is possible. By lowering the standard of life, an appreciable reduction of expenditure on imported commodities may be possible. But as we have already seen, many large items are incapable of reduction without reacting on the volume of exports. Let us put our guess as high as we can without being foolish, and suppose that after a time Germany will be able, in spite of the reduction of her resources, her facilities, her markets, and her productive power, to increase her exports and diminish her imports so as to improve her trade balance altogether by $500 million annually, measured in pre-war prices. This adjustment is first required to liquidate the adverse trade balance, which in the five years before the war averaged $370 million. But we will assume that after allowing for this, she is left with a favorable trade balance of $250 million a year. Doubling this to allow for the rise in pre-war prices, we have a figure of $500 million. Having regard to the political, social, and human factors, as well as to the purely economic, I doubt if Germany could be made to pay this sum annually over a period of 30 years, but it would not be foolish to assert or to hope that she could. Such a figure, allowing 5% for interest and 1% for repayment of capital, represents a capital sum having a present value of about $8.5 billion. I reach, therefore, the final conclusion that, including all methods of payment, immediately transferable wealth, ceded property, and an annual tribute, $10 billion is the safe maximum figure of Germany's capacity to pay. In all the actual circumstances, I do not believe that she can pay as much. Let those who consider this a very low figure bear in mind the following remarkable comparison. The wealth of France in 1871 was estimated at a little less than half that of Germany in 1913. Apart from changes in the value of money, an indemnity from Germany of $2.5 billion would, therefore, be about comparable to the sum paid by France in 1871. And as the real burden of an indemnity increases more than in proportion to its amount, the payment of $10 billion by Germany would have far severer consequences than the $1 billion paid by France in 1871. There is only one head under which I see a possibility of adding to the figure reached on the line of argument adopted above. That is, if German labor is actually transported to the devastated areas and there engaged in the work of reconstruction. I have heard that a limited scheme of this kind is actually in view. The additional contribution thus obtainable depends on the number of laborers which the German government could contrive to maintain in this way, 
and also on the number which, over a period of years, the Belgian and French inhabitants would tolerate in their midst. In any case, it would seem very difficult to employ on the actual work of reconstruction, even over a number of years, imported labor having a net present value exceeding, say, $1.25 billion. And even this would not prove in practice a net addition to the annual contributions obtainable in other ways. A capacity of $40 billion, or even $25 billion, is therefore not within the limits of reasonable possibility. It is for those who believe that Germany can make an annual payment amounting to hundreds of millions sterling to say in what specific commodities they intend this payment to be made, and in what markets the goods are to be sold. Until they proceed to some degree of detail, and are able to produce some tangible argument in favor of their conclusions, they do not deserve to be believed. I make three provisos only, none of which affect the force of my argument for immediate practical purposes. First, if the Allies were to nurse the trade and industry of Germany for a period of five or ten years, supplying her with large loans and with ample shipping, food, and raw materials during that period, building up markets for her, and deliberately applying all the resources and goodwill to make her the greatest industrial nation in Europe, if not in the world, a substantially larger sum could probably be extracted thereafter, for Germany is capable of very great productivity. Second, whilst I estimate in terms of money, I assume that there is no revolutionary change in the purchasing power of our unit of value. If the value of gold were to sink to a half or a tenth of its present value, the real burden of a payment fixed in terms of gold would be reduced proportionately. If a sovereign comes to be worth what a shilling is worth now, then, of course, Germany can pay a larger sum than I have named, measured in gold sovereigns. Third, I assume that there is no revolutionary change in the yield of nature and material to man's labor. It is not impossible that the progress of science should bring within our reach methods and devices by which the whole standard of life would be raised immeasurably and a given volume of products would represent but a portion of the human effort to which it represents now. In this case, all standards of capacity would be changed everywhere. But the fact that all things are possible is no excuse for talking foolishly. It is true that in 1870 no man could have predicted Germany's capacity in 1910. We cannot expect to legislate for a generation or more. The secular changes in man's economic condition and the liability of human forecast to error are as likely to lead to mistake in one direction as in another. We cannot, as reasonable men, do better than base our policy on the evidence we have and adapt it to the five or ten years over which we may suppose ourselves to have some measure of prevision. And we are not at fault if we leave on one side the extreme chances of human existence and of revolutionary changes in the order of nature or of man's relation to her. The fact that we have no adequate knowledge of Germany's capacity to pay over a long period of years is no justification as I have heard some people claim that it is, for the statement that she can pay $50 billion. Why has the world been so credulous of the unveracities of politicians? If an explanation is needed, I attribute this particular credulity to the following influences, in part. In the first place, the vast expenditures of the war, the inflation of prices, and the depreciation of currency, leading up to a complete instability of the unit of value, have made us lose all sense of number and magnitude in matters of finance. What we believe to be the limits of possibility have been so enormously exceeded, and those who founded their expectations on the past have been so often wrong, that the man in the street is now prepared to believe anything which is told him with some show of authority, and the larger the figure, the more readily he swallows it. 
But those who look into the matter more deeply are sometimes misled by a fallacy much more plausible to reasonableness. Such a one might base his conclusions on Germany's total surplus of annual productivity, as distinct from her export surplus. Helferich's estimate of Germany's annual increment of wealth in 1913 was 2 billion to 2.125 billion, exclusive of increased money value of existing land and property. Before the war, Germany spent between 250 million and 500 million dollars on armaments with which she can now dispense. Why, therefore, should she not pay over to the Allies an annual sum of $2.5 billion? This puts the crude argument in its strongest and most plausible form. But there are two errors in it. First of all, Germany's annual savings, after what she has suffered in the war and by the peace, will fall far short of what they were before, and if they are taken from her year by year in future, they cannot again reach their previous level. The loss of Alsace-Lorraine, Poland, and Upper Silesia could not be assessed in terms of surplus productivity at less than $250 million annual. Germany is supposed to have profited about $500 million per annum from her ships, her foreign investments, and her foreign banking and connections, all of which have now been taken from her. Her saving on armaments is far more than balanced by her annual charge for pensions, now estimated at $1.25 billion, which represents a real loss of productive capacity. And even if we have put on one side the burden of the internal debt, which amounts to 24 millions of marks, as being a question of internal distribution rather than of productivity, we must still allow for the foreign debt incurred by Germany during the war, the exhaustion of her stock of raw materials, the depletion of her livestock, the impaired productivity of her soil from lack of manures and of labor, the diminution of her wealth from the failure to keep up many repairs and renewals over a period of nearly five years. Germany is not as rich as she was before the war, and the diminution of her future savings for these reasons, quite apart from the factors previously allowed her, could hardly be put at less than 10%, that is, $200 million annually. These factors have already reduced Germany's annual surplus to less than $500 million at which we arrived on other grounds as the maximum of her annual payments. But even if the rejoinder be made that we have not yet allowed for the lowering of the standard of life and comfort in Germany, which may reasonably be imposed on a defeated enemy, there is still a fundamental fallacy in the method of calculation. An annual surplus available for home investment can only be converted into a surplus available for export abroad by a radical change in the kind of work performed. Labor, while it may be available and efficient for domestic services in Germany, may yet be able to find no outlet in foreign trade. We are back on the same question which faced us in our examination of the export trade, in what export trade is German labor going to find a greatly increased outlet? Labor can only be diverted into new channels with loss of efficiency and a large expenditure of capital. The annual surplus which German labor can produce for capital improvements at home is no measure, either theoretically or practically, of the annual tribute which she can pay abroad. End of Section 8 The Economic Consequences of the Peace by John Maynard Keynes Recording by Graham Macmillan San Diego, California.